Ezra chapter 8. We continue in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we begin, let's start with um, something that Steve Jones emailed to, to us, or the, sent us the beginning of this past week. Steve Jones is the president of our fellowship, and he has designated 2023 as the year of truth. And he says, my pastoral concern is while we remain vigilant and don't capitulate, that we don't slip into either of these two extremities, becoming indifferent to societal engagement by isolating ourselves, or becoming grumpy, disagreeable cousins known only for what we're against and not what we're for. And Ezra and Nehemiah actually shares these twin concerns for upholding truth and for missional engagement. And that's the burden of Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8. The return from exile in chapter 1 and 2 and the rebuilding of the temple in chapter 3 to chapter 6 were but the first steps of God's larger project of rebuilding his people so that they would be a light to the nations. They failed and they had been chastised by the exile. And God's work in their midst was reassuring them in bringing them back and enabling them to rebuild the temple. It was reassuring them that God had not given up on them. But beyond that, the people of God needed to know God better so that they could make him known to the nations. And that is why Ezra, who is introduced to us as a priest who had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel, was sent to Jerusalem. The people of God needed God's word. You see, truth is the proper basis of unity and identity. And if you recall last year, that's why we spent a lot of time on our affirmation of faith. Truth is the basis of unity and identity. So this morning, I invite you to go back with me to the Ahava Canal, where Ezra and his fellow returnees are fasting and praying in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Let's start in verse 21. Ezra 8, 21. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leaders, leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there 
had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at a thousand darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Ezra and his company are a second batch of returnees. They come bringing Artaxerxes' gifts for the temple. And historically, their return is a continuation of Persian policy. This is about 57 years after the temple had been rebuilt. But even if this was just a continuation of the Persian policy, the writer in chapter 7, verse 6 and verse 8, turn with me there, please, recognizes that God's providential hand was at work. It wasn't just politics. God was using the politics to care for his people. Look at verse 6. This Ezra came up from chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the good hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Then verse 8, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun... Uh, yeah, sorry. I read something wrong. <laughs> anyway. The point is that the good hand of God was upon Ezra. The providential hand of God was continuing to build his people. And throughout this account, we don't have time to go through every passage, but throughout this account, you see God's hand at work providing capable Levites in chapter 8, verse 18, who would serve in the temple. You see, serving in a temple that was not as grand as Solomon's temple wasn't very attractive to the Levites who, had, who were in exile. And a bigger part of it was that God had not manifested his presence in the second temple. Unlike the first temple, where when Solomon, after Solomon had prayed, the fire of God came down and God's glory filled the temple. That didn't happen in the second temple. And so, not even tax-free status could motivate the Levites to go back to Jerusalem. But if you look at chapter 8, verse 18, we are told that because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers. Uh, 22 in all? Did I read that right? I need new glasses. <laughs> anyway, Whatever. The point is that God's gracious hand gave Ezra favor in the hand of Art, before Artaxerxes. God's gracious hand provided the Levites they needed to lead the temple worship. 
Now you might ask, so why were they at the Ahava Canal fasting and praying? Well, Babylon was about 900 miles from Jerusalem. That's about 1,400 kilometers, roughly the distance from Toronto to Thunder Bay. Today, we could do it in a long day's drive, right? Not sure you would want to do that, but you could do that. But during those times, it would have taken four months through difficult terrain. To make things more difficult, they were carrying three tons of gold. That's a bit heavy, amounting to maybe about $120 million, conservatively, and 24 tons of silver, worth eh, about $15 million for the temple. And that wasn't all that they were carrying. They were also carrying their personal belongings because they were moving back to Jerusalem, to Israel. They had everything they owned with them. So you can imagine how juicy a target that would have been for bandits, not to mention the enemies of Israel who were still actively opposing them. And here's maybe the best part or the worst part, depending on how you look at it. Ezra could have asked for a military escort from Artaxerxes, except he thought it would diminish his claim that God's gracious hand is on those who look to him. That's why it says in chapter 8, verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all those who forsake him. He was concerned for Artaxerxes to see the greatness of God, and so he took what looks like, to us, a major risk. But as we see in verse 23, chapter 8, verse 23, and verse 32, God vindicated their faith, he answered their prayer, and brought them safely to Jerusalem. Now, when the text says, I proclaim the fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions, I must confess I'm challenged and convicted because I don't think we pray enough as a congregation. And I'm convicted by this, not only by this text, but also by the example of the Eritrean church that uses our building on Sundays. They're here on Wednesday nights. And if you're ever here on a Wednesday night, you'll learn to pray. Because they pray with a passion and fervency that reveals their consciousness that they need God. And I think in the coming years, God is leading us into waters beyond our depth so that we would learn to look beyond our resources and abilities to depend on God and his provision alone. After all, the gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Now, why would God send Ezra in the first place? Well, his goal was to reform the community against God's word. He is described as coming from the priestly line of Aaron, but he acts more like a second Moses because the people needed to be reoriented to God's word 57 years after the temple had been rebuilt. Some scholars say that Malachi, 
was a contemporary of Ezra. And if you read Malachi, you realize that the people's fervor for God had severely declined. And if Ezra 9 and 10 is any indicator, it seems that the people of God had drifted away from God. Next week, we'll talk about Ezra 9 and 10. And so, in chapter 7, verse 14 to verse 20, we are told that Artaxerxes, of all people, had sent Ezra to evaluate the temple worship by the standards of the law. That's 14 to 20. To appoint judges who would apply God's word and teach the people God's word. That's verse 25. And Ezra was uniquely suited for the task because he was a biblical scholar who knew God's word and whose daily life was shaped by that same word. Now, this passage points us to the centrality of Scripture in the life of the community. Imagine that. The, the God of heaven and earth arranged for Artaxerxes, a pagan emperor, to send a scholar like Ezra. And God went to the trouble of guiding Ezra safely to Jerusalem because God wanted his people to know his word. Ezra 1 and 2 shows us that God keeps his word to his people. So he formed the community by his powerful call to fulfill his purposes. Ezra 3 to 6 reminds us that God builds the community as we submit to his purposes in the face of adversity. But Ezra 1 to 6 also demonstrates to us that we need God's word in order to stay focused on the purposes of God. And thinking of Artaxerxes actually commissioning Ezra and giving him authority to impose punishments and all that to enforce God's laws does look very attractive, doesn't it? And some of us might be thinking, it would be nice, it must be nice to have government on your side. Well, let, let's just be clear. Neither the author of Ezra and Nehemiah nor the larger context of Scripture encourage us to work towards a Christian state in our time. First of all, this is simply a description of what happened. The author of Ezra and Nehemiah is not prescribing state support as the way things ought to be. And we recognize that because within the historical context, Artaxerxes' decree did not give the Jews most favored religion status. This was standard Persian policy to support religious practices of subject peoples so that they would stay loyal to Persia and keep their gods happy. In fact, it is quite possible that the reason Artaxerxes sent Ezra to Jerusalem was to make sure that the Jews did not join Egypt's revolt against Persia. What we do recognize with the author of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God was using Persian policy to accomplish his purposes. And third, we need to recognize that Ezra and his people were living under the Mosaic Covenant, which formed the people of God into a nation state. And so he needed Persian backing in order to, for them to be a true nation state, even if it's a vassal state of Persia. 
we need to recognize that we live not in the Mosaic Covenant, but in the New Covenant. And the church is God's New Covenant community. And the church transcends ethnic, cultural, and political divisions. We are actually closer in our day to the situation in the first century. And scripture describes us as resident aliens. We are citizens of heaven serving as ambassadors of the kingdom of God that has come and is coming. We live in the now and the not yet. And Jesus, our king, came to bear witness to the truth at the expense of his life. D.A. Carson would comment in his commentary on John, in this context then, truth is understood in more than an intellectual sense. It is nothing less than the self-disclosure of God in his Son, who is the truth. Disclosing the truth of God, of salvation, and of judgment was the principal way of making subjects of exercising his kingdom, his saving kingship. And so, we, the church, the people of God, the ambassadors of the kingdom, declare the truth as the compelling witness of our life together demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel. In many ways, that's what FIA is seeking to accomplish. They come alongside missionaries to adorn the gospel by believers acting to help the people and addressing real needs. And as they address real needs in love, that opens doors for the proclamation of the gospel. And frankly, it will not be easy. We follow in the footsteps of our crucified king. Yesterday, I was reading my Bible, and, Paul, and I, I read Paul and Barnabas warning the believers we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And this is after Paul had been stoned almost to death and then went and proclaimed the gospel. This is the task. This is our calling, our challenge. In the face of adversity, God wants us to model the beauty of the new society that God is bringing about when Christ returns. And actually, that is what Ezra was trying to accomplish in bringing the people back to Scripture. See, if you read Artaxerxes' decree in light of Zechariah 2, 11 and 12 and Malachi 1, 11, contemporary, um, Zechariah was prophesying during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. Malachi, scholars say, or some scholars say, was a contemporary of Ezra, you will realize that Ezra was seeking to spread the knowledge of God's law to other nations, and he was doing it through a biblically renewed Israel. And this is why Scripture is so critical. I am so glad that the kids are memorizing Scripture. That's great. See, God gave us the Bible, his special revelation, so that we may proclaim his excellencies as we know him in relationship. I mean, it's, it's just fabulous to think that the most 
wonderful person in the universe is speaking to us directly through his word. It is the word of this sovereign God who loves us, who loved us enough to send his son for us. It is no accident then that the longest passage in the Bible celebrates the word of God. Anybody know what that is? Okay, very good. I was going to say you get first crack at my pulled pork, but there's too many of you, so. <laughs> On a personal note, look, I've been reading my Bible, Genesis to Revelation, since I was 17. And I'm old. <laughs> but it's helped me immensely. I am a long way from where I should be, but I would be far worse if God had not been shaping me through my yearly Bible reading. And as Ezra studied and obeyed God's word, he was learning to think God's thoughts after him. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. This is Ezra. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And that's part of our goal as a church. It's not just the do's and the don'ts. It's, it's actually training us. As we know and do God's word in relationship with him, the Holy Spirit uses his word to train us to be wise so that we may enjoy the freedom that comes from living for God under his authority. Think of the musicians who were playing earlier. They have so internalized the basics of music theory and proper technique that they're able to bring the musical pieces, notes on a page, to life so that we are able to join them in joyful song. In the same way, we are all called to study all of Scripture so that our thinking would be aligned to God's thinking. But beyond that, so that our desires would be conformed to God's desires. And that way, no matter the situation, we would, by the enabling of the Spirit, have the skill to act in such a way that glorifies God, whatever the circumstance. And again, we will face pressure to ignore or redefine Scripture in order to fit into society. But we need to stand firm and be ready to pay the price for living out the implications of Scripture. So how do we do that? Well, we're not just brains and vats. Well, that's why worship was central to Ezra's concerns. You notice how Ezra in 14 to 20, chapter 7, verse 14 to 20, was sent to Jerusalem to ensure the people were worshiping rightly. In chapter 8, verse 15 to 20, he delayed their departure in order to make sure that they had Levites to facilitate temple worship. In chapter 7, verse 27 to 28, you see Ezra breaking out in praise to God in recognition of his favor. Worship permeates the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And earlier in chapter 3, verse 3, the returnees responded to the hostility of the people by worshiping God. And then when they struggled to rebuild the temple, that struggle began in worship. It ended in worship because their struggles 
taught them to desire God more than anything else. Why is that? Well, gathered worship is formative. What we're doing here isn't just a gathering. The Spirit is at work in us as we worship Him. Because gathered worship bridges the gap between knowledge and practice as it forms us to worship rightly during the week. Let me put it this way. Way back when I was fighting God's call to become a pastor, I was working in sales. I was working 50 hours a week, busy, running around, different clients, entertaining clients, engaging with clients, and I'll tell you, all my idols showed up. Well, all my, current, all my idols during that time were at play. It was wonderful to be able to come back to church on Sunday after a very disorienting week to return and to be reoriented back to God. To God in all his glory, to God in all his grace. I remember as we were singing, Lamb of God, what an awesome thing it is to look back to Christ after a long week where I have sinned, where I have failed, where my temper has flared, where I haven't been the, right, the kind of person I'm supposed to be. And then to come back and to recognize the Lamb of God was sacrificed in my place. I am accepted by this great and glorious holy God. I can rest. And, and I can come away from that having had my idols exposed and being reoriented to this great and glorious God so that when I'm tempted, I can go back. Do I replace the Lamb of God who died in my place with this? However alluring it is, does it compare to this great and glorious God? See, this emphasis on worship in Ezra recognizes that we are complex creatures who act out of our hearts, out of our affections and our desires. I mean, all of us understand this. We do not just act according to what we know. If it was just a question of knowledge, none of us would do anything wrong, right? We know better. You, you, we all tell people, you should know better. Yeah, I know better but I don't do better. Paul Tripp puts it this way. You have to understand that worship is not just an activity that some people give themselves to. No, worship is a fundamental identity that all people share. To be human means you are a worshiping being. Your heart, being the control, person, control center of your personhood, was designed by God to be a worship center. In other words, our hearts are always being ruled by something. You and I are always living for something. We are always living in pursuit of something that we think will deliver life however we define it to us. Jesus captures this worship dynamic with the word treasure. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And the psalmist would take it further. We become, according to Psalm 115, verse 8, like what we 
worship. Our corporate and individual worship form our desires that shape our lives. This is why we know what we should do and we don't do it. Our worship shapes our lives. Or to put it another way, orthopraxy, right living and practice, is rooted in doxology, that is to say, worship, that is grounded in orthodoxy, truth rightly understood. These three things belong together. And my prayer for our church, for Crestwick, is that we would increasingly become a people who think and act biblically because our desires are shaped by awe and amazement at the glory and greatness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we individually, collectively give ourselves to honoring God by being good stewards of His truth, then we will be more faithful to our task of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ here in Guelph. As His Word shapes us in daily worship, the beauty of our life together will adorn the gospel that we proclaim. I mean, that's why we're having game nights and game days. It's not just for the fun of it, but it's for the fun of gathering together as the people of God, doing life together, so that the people who come into our midst who do not know the Lord will see the beauty of our engagement with each other, so that even when I steal from you in Settlers of Catan, and do you mean you will forgive me <laughs> and still trade with me afterwards? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> But that's, you see, that's what the beauty of community is about. It's the beauty of community that dis dis displays the transforming power of the gospel. And yes, I know it sounds like mission impossible, right? But we can be confident that this will happen, that we can become this kind of church because... As Ezra says, the gracious hand of God is on those who look to him. And we look to Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. And I close with this statement from Stephen Wallum. We can be confident of this transforming, this transformation that needs to take place in our church because truly, in Christ alone, all our needs are met completely and perfectly. Our need for truth is found in him as the final prophet and revelation of God. Our need for a righteous standing before God is achieved by him as our priestly representative, substitute, and new covenant head. Our need to have our rebel hearts subdued, our enemies defeated, and the new creation inaugurated and ultimately consummated is accomplished by him alone as our conquering king. And here's the wonderful thing. We don't just look to him. Through faith, we have been united to him. He is at work in us. His spirit 
is dwelling in us individually and corporately. And he is shaping us to be his temple, his dwelling place, the showcase of his multicolored wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And we thank you that you've given us your word that it may shape, transform us so that we may proclaim Christ. And we thank you that we don't just proclaim what we do not know. We proclaim him whom we know, him whom we have experienced and continue to experience. We proclaim him who is the lover of our souls. And so, Father, with the Apostle Paul, we would pray that your spirit would empower us so that we might know the infinite, immeasurable depths and dimensions of your unfathomable love so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We know that you've given us your word so that we may know this love, but we pray that your word would lead us to adore, to adore Christ, would astound us and grip us so that our affections, our desires would be transformed to desire Christ above all. And in desiring him, desire to please him. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are at work in us to accomplish this. And you accomplish this not just for our sakes, although this is for our good, you accomplish this for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.